morning. We are glad you're here. We're looking forward to eating lunch together. Why don't you open up to Exodus chapter 15. That's where we'll be this morning. Exodus 15. It's great to have everyone in one place at the same time and uh, to not be split into two services. So uh, if you need water, don't be ashamed to walk up here and get some. That is no problem at all. for their 
of tasks in the wilderness that are meant to refine them and are meant to shape them and are meant to make them into the sort of people that can represent him when he makes his covenant with them. And all of those tasks, this is important for later on, are going to happen in the wilderness. Now obviously the people just left, left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, and now they're on their way to Mount Sinai. That's the destination where God will make a covenant with them,
sort of make this progress through all of these different areas of wilderness. Now, no doubt, when they left Egypt, they had packed up quickly, and they had grabbed unleavened bread, and they had grabbed a few things, and they had had some provisions, some water with them. But keep in mind, they had to water themselves, their children, and all of their animals. And so now they've crossed the Red Sea, and they've moved into the wilderness, and after walking for three days in the wilderness, they don't have any left, or at least not much left. They are running short. Look at verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So they come to this area, and it looks like there's drinkable water. But when some people start to taste the water, it's not drinkable at all. It's bitter. It probably has mineral deposits. Maybe it's brackish water, and it's not good for drinking
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a big deal. And it's a big deal, and it's a hideous sin because of what grumbling and complaining reveals about our hearts and about our posture toward God. One author described it like this. I'm going to read an extended quote to you because I found this so helpful. Grumbling, whining, and thanklessness are not ultimately the heart's response to circumstances, but to God. Israel grumbled at their enslavement, grumbled when Moses came on the scene, and still grumbled as they wandered safely in the wilderness. Their complaining wasn't rooted in their scenery, but their heart. The same is true for you. A heart of gratitude and thankfulness isn't dependent on your bank statement, doctor's diagnosis, or the praise you receive for a job well done. Thanklessness and grumbling, regardless of your situation, even your suffering, reflect your heart. Their sin. Spiritual amnesia is a deadly disease that threatens your faith and your joy more than any cancer. It penetrates to the core and rots your heart from within. That's powerful. And it is a big deal because of what it reveals about our hearts. Complaining reveals a spiritually rotting heart. And it's a heart that will not trust God. And it will not give him thanks. It will not recognize the many, many gifts that he has given. Now, it's amazing in this passage, right, in Exodus 15, I think we're all a little shocked by the speed with which the grumbling happens. Three days' journey into the wilderness. They had just witnessed God open up the sea walked through on dry ground and watched their enemies be drowned in the midst of the sea. And here they are, grumbling, upset, mad, three days later. And shockingly enough, maybe even more shocking than their response, is God's response to them. They're grumbling, and what does God do? And he is gracious, and he is good, and he is kind. Look at verse 25. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Clearly a supernatural, miraculous occurrence happens here, and God gives them exactly what they need, despite their grumbling. And then he goes on to tell them, look, this is a time of testing for you. And you need to recognize that. Look at the rest of verse 25. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There, he tested them. This whole experience is the test for them. Saying, verse 26, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. He's talking about the plagues there. He's not going to do any of that to them. If they will learn to obey him and learn to trust him, even when circumstances are difficult. 
Now look at verse 27. If they would have just been patient a few more days, look where they would have landed. They ended up landing here anyway. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. God brought them to this place almost immediately after Mara. Now, of course, if you're reading this, you would think, wow, this is such a display of grace and goodness despite the grumbling that surely they will get it this time. This will keep them from complaining again. Not so much. This brings us to our second purpose that God has in our testing. And the second purpose is that God, through testing, he substantiates his presence. The purpose here is God uses testing to substantiate, to solidify his presence, to help us to know that he is with us. This is in chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. This is kind of counterintuitive. God often uses times of testing and times of difficulty to make sure that we understand His presence is with us. No doubt you have had this experience before where you're going through something different and you more fundamentally realize that God is right there with you in the midst of that time of testing. It's kind of counterintuitive because sometimes Or to drown in the Red Sea like the 
not against Moses and Aaron. Ultimately, it's against God. And God, in his grace, is going to use this time of testing to confirm his presence among them. Look at verses 9 through 10, and look what God does for them here. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am. Trust him, and they are to demonstrate that trust by obeying his commands. 
commands here are meant to shape them into people who only gather what they need. They don't hoard their resources. They don't keep them from others. They're not fighting over them. They gather what they need, and God will meet their needs. But again, despite the clarity of this and the miraculous provision, some of the people fail to trust God and to obey Him. Verses 20 and 21. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And rightfully so, look at this, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. Amazingly enough, in the midst of this, God continues to provide, and then, as if it wasn't miraculous enough to wake up to this every morning, he gives them a very clear experience every seventh day on the Sabbath. Look at verses 22 to 26. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay aside to be kept till the morning, which is very different than what they had done throughout the week. They had to listen to God's word and obey him specifically here. Verse 24, so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh which seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. The manna would have rotted during the week, but here on the seventh day, they can keep it overnight, and God provides for them so that they can keep the Sabbath. Now think about this. When they were in Egypt for 400 years, God's people would not have had a day of rest like the Sabbath and a day to worship Him. Because the Egyptians would have required them to work seven days a week. And so now, under God's good and gracious leadership, he is going to provide for them what they need and to give them a Sabbath day every week in which they can rest and enjoy the delights of creation that he has provided and they can worship him and enjoy him. And their response needs to be to trust him enough to act on what he says. And yet, despite this, look at verses 27 to 30. This is becoming a rhythm that we're going to see for a while. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. They found none. Verse 28, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So, the people rested on the seventh day. We're only a month or so into this journey. God has tested them to reveal what is in their hearts. And already we are seeing very clear evidence that they are obstinate. They're not going to obey him. And so they will need instruction. They will need training. If they are going to be his Thank you. 
them in the wilderness and to the time when God tested them so that they could learn that he can be trusted and they can be obeyed. Look at verses 31 and 34. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. This wasn't
God is patient, he is slow to anger, but he also is not going to clear the guilty. So what does God do when his people, the nation of Israel, continue to disobey after this pattern of testing and disobedience in the wilderness? What does God do for them? Well, he sends a representative king, a true Israelite, who represents the whole nation. And this true Israelite is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But he doesn't fall. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't give in. What does he do? In Matthew chapter 4, when this Israelite king is tempted in the wilderness, he goes to scripture, yes, but what scripture does he go to? He quotes the book of Deuteronomy, and specifically the point in Deuteronomy where Moses is talking about Israel's failure to obey in their time of in the wilderness. And this representative king comes on the scene and he obeys where Israel failed in the wilderness. And by identifying with Israel's failure in the wilderness, he acts in righteousness, he represents them, he obeys, he overcomes their failures, he proves his own righteousness, and he becomes their true representative. Here's what's beautiful about this for you and I today. This whole story, watching Israel fail over and over and over again, no doubt you and I are right here with them. I mean, we can't be too hard on them. We see a glimpse of God's goodness and then we turn around and in less than three days we complain. We grumble. We turn right around and we disobey his word. He can't be trusted. He's not good. And we act in our own power, in our own strength, and according to our own ideas. We sin. We mess up. We are a mess. Yet, God, in His lavish goodness, has graciously provided a representative for us who was tested and who was tempted and who overcame sin on our behalf for us. righteous because we are not. And he dies on the cross and rises from the dead and brings us along with him. And so we are in him this morning if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in him. And so every bit of testing that he experienced and his victory over it and his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, all of that is for you. And it is on your behalf. And it counts for you this morning. You and I get all the glorious benefits of this king's victory over the powers of darkness and over death and over sin. And that's a wonderful, glorious thing. So when you fail, when you grumble, when you sin, when you mess up, turn to him. Because he has provided Every bit of everything that you and I need. Father, we learn so much from this passage. We identify with Israel. We know that we are consistently grumpy, complaining people. 
because we are united with him, because he has won the victory on our behalf. We're so thankful. Help us to live this week in light.